Greetings, errants, glitches, breakaways, thought criminals, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever simulacrum we find ourselves navigating at the moment. You are about to set sail on another free first hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For a measly five dead presidents per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just click the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes below to create the timeline that will set it all in motion. It's suspiciously simple, altogether painless, and just might inspire feelings of bliss and or lingering euphoria. So, without further ado, let the conversations begin! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. starters, this conversation was fraught with technical difficulty, so my apologies here right at the onset. Our guest, Inna Raitort, lives in Thailand, and it is currently typhoon season there, so throughout the conversation, she was pulled offline by the prevailing conditions where she was at. Secondly, how do you even begin to talk about such a densely exquisite book such as Krivda, The God Tricks Against the Matrix? There is so much going on within it that there could be a series of conversations regarding every chapter. So we just sort of hopped on bareback and just let the exchange take us where it may. I start off the conversation by asking Anna what inspired her to pin such a book as Krivda. I was not really inspired. I was kind of compelled. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of um, of uh, the Great Covidiana, mm-hmm. um, I noticed that there was lots of religious vocabulary creeping into, you know, commentators on the alternative side, commentators' observations about, you know, some great priest of um, medicine and some, uh, you know, god of vaccines and things like that, and it suddenly clicked that there was a continuity all the way from the ancient gods and more particularly the god of Christianity all the way through to the gods that were coming around now. Mm-hmm. And, and then 
so many things that I had made observations of that but were all sort of, you know, pieces of a puzzle that I didn't know existed. Suddenly it all clicked. You know, I think when 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 the COVID thing started hitting, a number of us had had things clicking and everything started to fall into place. And so this is what happened for me. And I just then at that point, I just felt there is a structural continuity here between what we call religion and what we reluctantly call religion now. And most people, especially Westerners, don't understand that it's the same phenomenon. So I took our you know, best known uh, case study, which is Christianity, which has also been the most Mm, well, globalized and uh, reified and instrumentalized and etc. for the purposes of mind control and world domination. And also because it is very obviously a secular system mm -hmm. in, together with a religious system, so-called. And so, you know, I just went through the history of it from Yahweh through to, well, Jesus and the Middle Ages and and then as it started waning in the Renaissance. But basically, as I went through it, you had different pieces of an actual structure that fell into place. All the ingredients of a particular system of governance, domination, what have you. And once I got these bits of structure into place, well then, okay, what came next? Basically capitalism with colonialism and with monetarization of life. Mm -hmm. And that was the God of money. And you find exactly all the same structures with doctrines, with high priests, with, you know, places of power um, and with a, a specific way of um, of enclosing people into that system such that they are completely dependent on it, meaning a savior program also. <laughs> You've got the savior program that in religious religion establishes this mediation between humans and the beyond as if humans did not naturally have their relationship with the beyond which yeah. inhabits them. Exactly. Okay, so it's the introduction of this intermediate layer that is going to appropriate the intrinsic power of our natural relationship to the beyond and is going to harness the rest of who we are in terms of energies and labor and love and, and emotions and fear and everything else. They're going to harness it, of course, for their own earthly purposes of wealth and domination, but also in service to the gods whatever and whomever these gods may be. You know, you can argue that way back, and it has been, you know, quite clearly demonstrated that Yahweh was actually some kind of, you know, being, along with a bunch of other beings of his ilk, the Elohim, and that they, you know, came with all sorts of ET devices, and that they acted as colonizers, in rather nasty, brutal ways, um, they were not the first. They were probably the inheritors of the so-called bad Anunnaki. Um, 
But then after that, on the basis of that experience, the high priests devise the New Testament religion, where Yahweh is no longer there, he's kind of vanished. And then we go into a, a purely sort of fabricated story. Now, with the other religions that come after that, the god of money and the god of science, um, you've got the god of war who's been there throughout, um, and now all the way into what I call the techno-god, techno-mind god, because it's a particular intelligence that brings together all the different religions that have come up until then. And we're seeing now the convergence of all the different types of tech. Uh, with, of course, the god of money, with, of course, the god of war. I mean, they're all coming together, mm -hmm. and the structure is always the same. So once it clicked for me, well, uh, you know, a friend said, hmm, you should write a book. And, you know, having been trained academically and written three academic books way back when, I'd sworn to myself I'd never write again. <laughs> but the next day, I was right. You know, I was in my in my little keyboard, and um, and off I went again because it was just too compelling. Yeah. And you know, as I went, well, exactly the piece of research that I needed fell into my lap, and um, and and there were all these continuities, both exoteric and esoteric. You know, including the whole business of well, human sacrifice in general, but child sacrifice in particular, which has become so so in your, in our faces now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it kind of yeah, that's that's how that's how it came. But the other element of this, I would not have been able to spot the gods had I not had a sui generis um, it, sort of immersion in a. Mm. an esoteric grassroots movement of Bengal in India. You know, why that happened to me way back when, I didn't know, you know, it just had to happen. But those people in India, of all places, very clearly profess, we have no gods, no priests, and no religions. We don't need that. We have the human path. And so... Well, you know, it took a bunch of years for what they were saying and what they were doing and, and the ancient knowledge that they, you know, the ancient wisdom inside them to kind of percolate for me. And it there again, this all clicked when this God sequence became obvious to me. Everything fell into place. And, the, you know, the business of these dirt poor grass grassroots people um, you know, beyond the pale of even the caste system, uh, these people with their the dignity and the the authenticity of of their path, where they were saying, "Well, yeah, the job of a human being is to discover the fullness of what he or she is as a human being." Wow. Okay, and so you know that 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 seeded into me. The, the path that would develop for me as a human being, not being a Bengali, and you know, after 10 years' involvement with them, I couldn't stay any longer for objective reasons. And so, it, yeah, that fed into the, the understanding of the esoteric aspect in particular, 
of the gods and the religions. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Well, I think that's what, uh, at least in the cases of the newer versions of religion that we're seeing with the tech religion and the sort of the medical industrial complex religion, that makes it a much more uh, sort of ingenious tool of control when the people that are taking part in the religion itself don't not they not only do not realize that they're operating within a religious dynamic, but that uh, most of them, and I'm going to paint with a, a wide brush here, are probably leaning towards some sort of atheism or some degree of atheism that think that they're above anything remotely resembling a religion. So then you just, Absolutely. yeah, they're operating blindly in this control system that they have have no clue on about on, on many, many levels. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the religious, the religious religious system is so, it has of course had its usefulness historically in terms of somehow harnessing a kind of morality in the people. Um, so that, you know, you wouldn't have everybody going out, destroying everybody else. Uh, no pushkat. No, no, no. You can say hello. And <laughs> um, yes. Okay. Um, no, you be a good girl now. Come on. Oh, you want to be part of the fun? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not on the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's ten of these, so you know we might come each one. You know. Each one each one. <laughs> But basically, the, the cunning thing of it is that wrapped inside the good stuff, there is, um, there is the, the esoteric control mechanism, control package or software that is installed in our minds together with the, the morality. So, you know, you get the message of love and all that, but you get all sorts of contradictions in the message from 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 the doctrines and and you get the savior program so that you are told that you are the best of the best because you've been baptized and because you're doing good and because you love Jesus and all this kind of thing and at the same time while you have to do all these good things you're still a sinner by definition because you're human, through the Adam and Eve lineage, in particular, I mean, in that in the story, and um, and you know, no matter how much good you do in the world, you're 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 played you're played in advance. You have to be saved, mm -hmm. which yeah. is why you have to go and partake every Sunday or more than that in in a symbolic. Um, human sacrifice of the man Jesus and you know with all the weird I mean they they took they did a really crafty job of lumping together you know the kind of uh, young god sacrifice that used to have to take place to ensure the fertility of the soil and other forms of human sacrifice that were practiced you know, across the ancient world, in the, in the, in the, in the previous era before, before the common era, and um, 
you know, package this with what I consider to be the story of an absolutely human man and to sanitize him to their purposes, to mutualize the actual human power of his story, made him a god. Mm -hmm. And not really a full god, the yeah. son of God. I mean, they made it all so extremely complicated and mm -hmm. convoluted that, you know, people get lost. And this has given rise to tons and tons of books of exegesis, exegesis, you know, over the centuries. Um, and to this date, I mean, people are still writing about the mystery of Jesus and this, that, and the other. It's, um, it's, it's mind-boggling when, in fact, the thing is so very, very simple. It's for us humans to discover the wholeness of what it is to be a human from the out there into the down here. And what this means for the for what we're supposed to be doing here. Yeah. And you know, not in in expectation and hope for an extraordinary, you know, uh, afterlife. Okay. Here comes Mr. Hima. <laughs> from the group. Um, so, so you really want to be part of the conversation today. Okay. Come, come, pull up a chair. <laughs> I wish we did have chairs. Anyway. Um, yeah, so that's, that's it in a nutshell, basically. And to and then to take that human uh, and uh, put that in a, in a dynamic where um, it is a very disempowering uh, place that we start off at. Uh, we were born in sin. Uh, we're just we're, we're sinners just by existing, uh, and then we are supposed to be racked with guilt because of this person, but we're supposed to think that they're the son of God, uh, which you make a point in your book as there's a play on words with sun God there, which there's a lot of overlap between those two uh, dynamics as far as the religious aspect of that plays out. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, sort of uh, self-sabotage and um, looking at the you know ourselves and our place in the world and and uh our bodies and all worldly items are there's things that are dirty or that they're tainted or that they're pithy and and vulgar somehow uh and the real stuff comes after we die um after we've paid for all of our sins uh and we spend our lives uh going through these rituals of guilt and uh, like you said, uh, the, especially in Catholicism, when they, you, you drink the blood of Christ and you eat the body of Christ. I mean, that's, when you think about it, just a little bit, that's very twisted. It's a very twisted sort of ritual going on. I mean, there's lots of twisted things about Catholicism. It, it's... Go ahead. Plus within a context, a context that was already extremely patriarchal, mm -hmm. making, you know, women, nature, um, you know, completely on the side of, the, of flesh and the main bearers of sin. And so establishing, enshrining in ideological, religious, salvational terms, a supremacy of male over female, such that 
the mail was going to be messed up anyway, you know, as per your description, mm -hmm. by the doctrine and the rituals and all that. But he would have dominion over her and over nature. Yes. And there are, you'll find later on in the book, I mean, there are, um, you know, nature, apart from uh, the mystics, of course, have communed with nature. But in the religion, the exoteric religion itself, nature is, uh, nature is that, you know, it's, it's one of those major dwelling places of the devil and yeah, of evil certainly. stuff that happens. So yes. you've got this, this further layer of divorcing us from our natural partner in life, mm -hmm. which is, you know, nature around us. And it's not just a matter of agriculture. Agriculture is part of it, but there's way more, which the mystics, of course, felt and enjoyed and could more or less convey. But, you know, when you're, that's the other thing that my, my uh, mystic people in, uh, my esoteric grassroots people in Bengal, they were very clear that there is, there are two principles that operate in humans and both in terms of our incarnations and in terms of what we can explore from within these incarnations and those two principles which express as two human species that's the way they put it is male and female that's all there is to it and uh, nature which for them is prakriti. Prakriti is much more than what we call nature here. The whole of earth is prakriti. It's a whole, I mean, the feminine principle, um, be it, you know, out there in the beyond and here in incarnation. All of that is prakriti. It's the divinity that goes with purusha, which is human. And it's the interplay of these two I mean, Purusha and Prakriti are versions of Shiva and Shakti. And it's the interplay of these two that, that makes creation, that makes stuff happen, both into incarnation and within this incarnation in the exploration of what it is to be human. So, you know, once I had that, and I really explored that very, very deeply while I was, you know, with those people out there. Then, you know, the business of the estrangement, to put it mildly, of the feminine in the Christian religion. And, well, you know, in all the monotheistic religions, it is just so much in your face, such that it's not a matter of, you know, being a feminist, trying to claim back an equal kind of role in life as, as, as men but it's reclaiming the complementarity of the talents that men and have and women have differently and in different mixes I, I, you know and that makes the whole the whole juice of the game but when that is taken away from women and from men everybody loses Agreed. except that they can play their economic and power games with prostitution and with you know um the harems of the of the rich people and and you know all the all the prohibitions on women, uh, and the extra layer of guilt on women. 
which is actually amplified when they introduce the new role model. They've, they've taken away the old mother of goddesses and they have to reintroduce the figure of Mary because they, they realize, you know, after three, four centuries, that if you don't have a feminine principle in there, the whole thing is going to fall apart. The people are simply not going to cooperate. Mm -hmm. So they reintroduce the feminine principle, but she's a virgin mother. And so you're going to have this role model for the women who are already guilty of being the purveyors of, you know, sex and sin and temptation yeah. to males who are otherwise so pure. I mean, you know, when you put together all the different elements of these of this sort of multifaceted, contradictory, nonsensical doctrine and how it plays with the guilt instinct that that is not actually an instinct. I mean, you know, out where I live here, there is, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult kind of game to instill a sense of guilt in, in Buddhists. Guilt is not, you know, you've got karma, okay? Yeah. And you've got the simplified understanding of karma. Mm -hmm. But guilt is not intrinsically a part of karma. The yeah. point is, you make a mistake, you need to understand your mistake. Guilt does not need to be a part of the equation. Exactly. But the monotheistic things have laid on, you know, very thick layers and multiple layers of of the stuff of guilt. And all of this sits very deep in, in our unconscious, in our subconscious. So, you know, you can't even blame the people who buy into religions. Um, it takes it takes something else, you know, it takes exposure to something radically different for a person to start going to question that programming that is very, very deep and it's intergenerational. We inherit it, not only in the DNA or epigenetics of our parents and our lineages, but it's it's through the subconscious of, of the whole of humankind. So, you know, they did a pretty, pretty fantastic job, you know, those guys up there. I, I just think that uh, there's something to be separated here that we can kind of parse out, which is the uh, edited version of the Bible that we are given, which was written four to five hundred dollars after four, four to five hundred years after Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Four to five hundred years after Jesus. Uh, died allegedly, so I, I think that that's something to uh, to really examine is that we are not really reading the Word of God when we're reading the Bible. These are uh, doctrines that have been passed on that have been completely edited and um, maybe uh, designed to control people. So of course. I think that's the thing to really um, examine here is that what has happened to people is that we understand our true nature. We understand um, our true connection to the earth and our true connection to humans, male, the male and female connection. But 
what has been removed from there or eroded from there is this idea of um, that that kind of central symbiotic relationship that we have with God, the the energy we call God, and it's been turned into this thing that uh, calls us a sinner or or that we live in sin. So do you, when you are examining Christianity, which version of uh, the Bible are you examining? I did not use the Bible. I used the work of people who have worked on the Bible. Because I'm not, a, I mean, if I were to be a specialist in all the topics that are included, Mm-hmm. In in this book, Krivda, um, well, I wouldn't have written it. You know, I'd still be, I'd, you know, three lifetimes from now. So, you know, because I have academic training, I I have a snout, and because I'm also contemplative, I have this other snout. I've mm-hmm. got both the mystic and the intellectual snouts. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and and I'm relatively multilingual, so I can go and look for sources outside the English language. And there is this this um, translator of Hebrew who's who's becoming quite famous, also you know, in the English-speaking world, called Mauro Biglino. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, he's the guy who started off making available to. Um, modern people who don't know Hebrew, um, his naked translation, word-for-word, literal translation of the Hebrew. And he shows that, you know, Hunter, you're referring to the modifications of the text in, after, after the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Those modifications were happening in the centuries well before Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because... As, as Begino shows, um, Yahweh was a pretty terrible guy who demanded, you know, child sacrifice mm. um, as other gods, colonizers, you know, in, in that realm at the time. And my understanding is that they had to somehow change the story to make it not so terrible mm. because it is an essential foundational element of establishing the Jewish or Judaic religious ethnicity, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, that's the other problem, you know, with religions that are associated with a particular ethnicity. Catholicism is Catholic. It's for everybody. Thank you very much. And so they changed the story. And then after Jesus, well, you know, the only credible thing to me is the things that the man Jesus said. Mm -hmm. Okay. And some of those nuggets are present, like, you know, the business of loving, the business of letting little children come to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, little children come to me not for human sacrifice. I mean, there are, you know, all these little nuggets of the man Jesus and the big nugget when he goes into the temple because he knows that the money God 
has been growing in the shade of the god gods mm -hmm. for centuries, if not millennia. And so his big gesture is to go and denounce the fact that the religious, spiritual side of things in the priesthood is completely part and parcel of the banking system. At a time when, you know, the people, the Jewish people, I mean, different people in that area were being increasingly pauperized, as is happening now. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the money god and the spiritual god were completely in league. They're, you know, part and parcel of the same thing. So, you know, after that, once they've, you know, once they, they've plowed through the different versions of the word of Jesus, mm -hmm. Over the century, the early centuries after after um, the man Jesus is is sacrificed, there are loads and loads and loads and loads of different stories, um, and I'm not aware of any of the Gnostic texts that actually claim to say this is what Jesus actually said. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it's very obvious that the four evangelists. They were not contemporaries of Jesus, and they came up with very different stories too, albeit with, you know, commonalities, but all these different stories. So, you know, the word of God, it's not there. And that, you know, that settles the problem. If, you know, it's particularly true in North America and in places like the Philippines, you know, um, there is this blind faith in the text. There is no, people don't have an idea that, that texts can be rewritten and exactly. are rewritten. Yeah. They have no idea of the whole history behind the rewriting of these texts and the people who died for it. Mm -hmm. yes. And that, you know, even the King James Bible, the thing that King James wrote before, you know, having his Bible redone mm -hmm. was a treatise on witches and demonology. I mean, he was terribly excited by all the witchcraft, you know, all the witch trials that were beginning to explode around that time. So, you know, he cut his teeth on the demons and the witches. And then he went on to Kim's, uh, King James Bible. Uh, um, you know, to take any text, any book as being, you know, the absolute is completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But... Since people are brainwashed and intergenerationally and inter, you know, for centuries and millennia, this programming is, is inside us. You know, you can't blame them, especially if they don't know any other language where they might be curious and they might go and see, oh, what they say in English here in my Bible it's not the same thing in that Italian Bible. Exactly. It's not the same thing. Why don't they say the same thing? You know, it's when you start getting out of a monolithic culture, mm -hmm. such as, you know, in spite of all the melting pot that you have up in North America, it is such a monolithic culture for the Bible people. Yep. Even in spite of the variations with all the denominations that you have in America, mm -hmm. there is this insistence on... Yes, this is the party line kind of thing. It's absolutely amazing. And, you know, why do we have so many den denominations in America? 
it, why this diversity? Why? And then you have the Quakers, mm -hmm. you know, who who are, you know, a pretty pure version of the, you know, the, the good part, mm -hmm. um, you know, in harmony with nature and none of this techno bullshit and all that. You know, I mean, it's um, the diversity that you have in America is such that, I don't know, I mean, any American would normally look at, okay, why do the Quakers do their believing and life so differently from me? And, you know, and then why are they kids, why are their kids more healthy than me, than mine? Yeah. And, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the other thing is that with the confusion and the multiple layers of guilt, you're not going to question anything. To be able to question anything, you need to have, you know, one inch of yourself that can sit next to the, you know, one cubic meter of yourself to look at the cubic meter and say, hmm, what's, it's kind of weird, you know, and to start observing stuff. But when people don't have that distance, you know, from themselves, the useful distance, and at the same time, they're completely dissociated within themselves mm -hmm. because of the guilt, because of you know, all the falsities, all the contradictions that that just simply don't make sense. They make life nonsensical. Well, then, yes, you're going to take refuge in whatever society gives you. And, you know, we're just coming out of an era where there has been, you know, convenience and consumption and all these things as uh, drugs to make us addicted to, you know, not looking where we might be able to look. Well, and especially when you consider the filter of uh, the printing press. And prior to the printing press, you had to go to a priest or to the, the local vicar to hear the word of God. So that was being filtered from someone else. So you didn't actually have access to a Bible or, or any text to read and interpret yourself. It was really based on someone else telling you what the word of God was. So I think that that has yeah. had a massive shift too in that you are getting all of these interpretations and you're also getting them from an individual. Who himself, you know, at village level, you know, the local priests were not terribly highly educated. So, you know, I mean, um, it was... Okay, I mean, whatever was transmitted or conveyed there would, was not, I mean, you know, they learned certain psalms by heart and they, you know, whatever. Um, and people were deliberately kept illiterate. And people were not allowed, you know, even if you, even if you did know how to read and write, you were not allowed to own a Bible. The great revolution with Gutenberg was well, okay, that people could have access to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, and this played a major role in, in the Reformation. Uh, yeah, in the Reformation and in the Protestant Calvinist sort of movements. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because then people started looking at the books. But, I mean, you know, we would have to be able to remote view ourselves back into the Renaissance to be able to feel how these people felt when they read these texts that until then had been given to them only in partial oral form. Um, 
Yeah, I won't go there because <clears throat> I don't know. But at the same time, we do know historically that it's from the Renaissance that the curiosity of wanting to find things out emerged because the printing press gave access to stuff that was not the Bible also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And to lots of stuff that would then, of course, be burnt, you know, um, by the Inquisition and uh, was it the Office of Prohibited Books? Mm -hmm. So... You know, that's when censorship would come out in the open. The censorship was embedded in the previous oral system. Um, but the other thing is, during those, those centuries of the Middle Ages, of the oral system, mm -hmm. the pagan ways of people were still very much alive. Mm -hmm. By the year 1000, the bishops were ranting and railing about, you know, the, the faithful you know, doing their dances, their heathen dances around the church, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It continued through until, you know, the witch trials, which themselves continued in the Age of Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. The greatest number of witch trials and burnings happened during the Enlightenment. You know, that's another thing that we are not sufficiently aware of. It was not in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Inquisition was a, you know, it was a... Uh, a very temporary thing that was suddenly would be decreed in this or that region, you know, okay, we need to do some purging in, um, okay, the southeast of France, for instance, obviously the southwest. Um, and then, you know, it was not an institution yet. It got institutionalized much later. You know, with all the changes of the, the printing press, as you say, the Renaissance, the, 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 human curiosity, but that's the reassuring thing, is that in spite of all the bullshit and mind programming, human curiosity was the minute they could have start to have access mm -hmm. to different sources of knowledge, they just went, you know, they flocked to it. And that's when you have this sort of huge flourishing of all sorts of stuff in the Renaissance. But with that flourishing, we had also the seeds of what would become Cartesian rationalism, mm -hmm. which would lead into science that would divorce us even further from nature and, from, and, and would specialize us in certain forms of knowing, which are absolutely anti-mystical, anti-natural anti esoteric. We would have this resurgence of interest that we have now in alchemy and spagyrics and all these things, which are very valid, but they're only partial. They, they, you know, they cover certain topics and they give you certain recipes that you're supposed to follow, whereas the recipe for something much larger is already embedded in us mm. by nature. So... You know, this whole this whole evolution has also specialized us because we've been so dissociated. It's specialized into into this mind, this intelligence, mm -hmm. which makes it that much easier for what I call the techno mind, because it's not just tech; it's a mind, and it's not just created by humans. It's something else. There's an egregore of something there, and it requires us to live up here, with our heads cut off from the rest of who we are. Be it the physicality, the emotionality, the, the different consciousnesses that dwell in 
you know, the level of cells, the level of tissues, the level of emotions, and how all these things fit together. So, you know, we are still, and I think this is perhaps our major problem now, is that we are up here. Yes. Definitely. We've become very skilled, very skilled at analyzing things, pulling them, pulling them apart. Mm -hmm. But how many people actually connect the dots of everything? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think that's a, it's kind of a, a uh, symptom of, of hyper-materialism, too, um, getting up here, because we get sort of addicted to what we think, what we like to perceive as objectivity, which is what scientism specializes in. Like, it's all about proving things, and if you can't prove it, then it might as well just be, a, you know, a flight of fancy. So it's obsessed with repetition it's obsessed with um, uh, a world that we can only uh, engage with through our senses it's obsessed with um, something that can be weighed or measured uh, something that you can point to and then ask the person next to you if they're seeing the same sort of thing so yeah it's a it's a strange I mean, do you think that the going back to what you said about the egregore do you think the tech egregore is the mutation of a previous egregore that uh, sort of was there ahead of time? Do you think this is a whole new beast? Um, this is where <laughs> we go into territory that I've never been particularly interested in ufology, mm. but when I got into Mauro Biglino and his reading of Yahweh with yeah. all his magic devices, yes. And the notion, and then, you know, the notion that humans have been seeded a number of times mm -hmm. on this planet yeah. via different ET races or what have you, mm -hmm. all in conjunction with the fact of what people call multidimensionality or multidensity, mm -hmm. spirits and all that kind of thing, which used to be real things for our ancestors. We've banished them. They no longer exist. Yeah. There's only the Holy Ghost who is, you know, unknowable. But spirits, the, the, the non-tangible reality of a far larger reality than our incarnate reality is something that we have completely lost also by being up here. But by being up here, the mind, this mind, operates in a linear fashion, like our languages sort of, you know, un, 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 unravel their discourse in a, in, a, in a linear fashion. But illiterate people, and I've lived with illiterate people for a long time, they still have the remnants, but I've also encountered illiterate people who, who were, I mean, you know, the, the amount of memory that they have, the amount of knowledge that they have, because they, they don't entrust stuff to books, they have to hold it all, and it's not in the brain, it's, it's held in their field. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not a thing. Mm. And so they have this multidimensional perception where logic is never just, you know, A goes to B goes to C. C is going to go to A, then to Z, and then come back to B, go via F, and it's going to reconstitute the web of life. So 
you know, when we talk of materialism, that, that's another one of those buzzwords of the West that establishes ipso facto a dichotomy with spirituality. And it keeps matter divorced from spirit, whereas matter derives from spirit. Our incarnations come from who we are as soul beings or whatever it is that we call mm -hmm. our intangible selves that inhabit these bodies. So, you know, I mean, the whole business of what it is to be human and to, and, and to, to be here on this earth has to do with the great mystery of incarnation, of the subtle and the material, the subtle and the gross in their interaction. And this is what, you know, true tantric practitioners are well aware of. True tantric practitioners, not the neo-tantrism that, you know, that you've got with the new age. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we talk, when, when we rant about materialism, we're actually accusing matter. When matter, matter is a very big deal because it's, it takes a hell of a lot of transformations and energy for subtle realms to come into incarnation. Mm -hmm. And it's only through incarnation that change can meaningfully happen in a way that that the universe can can take hold of and and try to you know replicate elsewhere perhaps i mean you know i'm not the universe so i don't you know i, I don't know but it's 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 sure you are <laughs> uh, in a different way okay in a different way there yeah. you're an expression of the universe you know it's it's uncomfortable to sit at the at the edge between this mind and the larger mm -hmm. mind consciousness or whatever you want to call it. I mean, all these words are mind, mind, M-I-N-E-D, M-I-N-D fields. Mm -hmm. All of these worlds, because they've all been instrumentalized in particular by, you know, new age and by science and things like that. So that, you know, Everything is consciousness. Okay, what the hell is consciousness? I mean, we know as humans that we've got a conscious, a subconscious, and potentially also an unconscious. Okay, the Earth is conscious, we've discovered. Okay, mm -hmm. what kind of consciousness does Earth have? Um, consciousness creates everything. Oh, what kind of consciousness? I mean, does consciousness have agency? Is consciousness the same as knowledge? What is it in terms of the quality of knowing? All these questions are not being asked by the people who use these words, you know, um, without caution. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, materialism versus spirituality, A, it's an ism, okay? Perhaps we should call it, it's, it's more dangerous actually in terms of, of the mechanistic functioning of it. It makes our minds function in a mechanistic way in interpreting processes and things around us that we study with science, and we have to make them operate mechanistically so that we get our answers. We, get, we take this tiny slice of reality. I'm going to examine, okay, such a bug. 
to examine the whole bug, I have to cut off one leg and examine that one leg first. So I'm going to go to the smallest thing. And once I've examined and analyzed all of the bits and pieces, then perhaps I can put them together and understand the mechanics of how the whole bug works. That's, that's an incredibly um, linear process, but that is the process that is actually happening with us when we're talking about materialism. We are reducing the spiritual realm, the realm of the subtle, with its multi-dimensions, and there again, there's another word that's dangerous, its multiplicity. We're reducing it to something mechanistic. And, you know, you've got people who do all sorts of meditation, things like that, and then they're going to bring it into their conscious consciousness to interpret it. Oh, um, you know, uh, oh, this happened to me while I was, you know, having a walk out in nature. This means that, yeah, yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to be conversant with the language of nature. Uh, you know, it's this linear mechanistic thinking, which is applied by by postmodern science, especially mm -hmm. because the early scientist was well aware of the multiplicity of everything, mm. and and they tried to convey it. They tried to write it, um, and it became increasingly sort of sort of shrunken down into mm -hmm. a funnel of of a linear stuff that the mind could sort of grab, comprehend, the little mind could grab, comprehend, and turn into, you know, you do A, you're going to get B. It, this, this sort of simplistic sort of causality, simplistic explanations, simplistic everything, which, you know, then produces these buzzwords and these cliched concepts that people use without feeling the whole depth that came before in, in the genesis of these of, of these concepts. Like, you know, there's this convention, as above, so below. Out in my esoteric grassroots India, what they say is everything that is in the universe is in the human body. Wow. It's kind of different. Mm -hmm. yes, so, you know, quite. people say, you know, we're going to say as above, so below. Okay. We're going to use, we use these buzz, there again, we use these buzzwords, which are abbreviations, which facilitate our communication as Westerners. And it does facilitate our communication, provided we are, all parties in the conversation are agreed as to the whole complexity of the iceberg that sits underneath that one word or that one phrase. Mm. So... I'm sorry, that was my big rant. No, uh, it's wonderful. Don't be sorry. You, you yeah, know, but I, I'm in the academic world right now, and so I, I spend much of my time reading uh, literature about neurobiology. I'm studying to be a psychologist, but I'm also interested in uh, neuroscience and the, the pivot away from this... Um, very linear version of of scientism is kind of exploding right now in research where people are looking at other aspects of the mind and perhaps understanding that the frontal lobe is not really where our decision making happens that a lot of this 
that you're talking about is happening in the subconscious, that the gut microbiome is very intrinsically related to decision-making as well. So I think the the um, upside of what I'm saying is that there's this old guard that exists, and now there are new energies coming into these realms that are saying, okay, maybe we are, there's some other uh, relationship that we need to examine. So that gives me hope that we aren't necessarily going down this path. It's a foregone conclusion. Oh, I think, you know, and it's, it's not just in science, it's, it's in everything that <clears throat> at least some people are questioning and are sort of, you know, they're reopening what used to be sort of closed, closed doors. So, um, yeah, that's, it is, it's exciting that it's happening at last. Um, and, you know, the more people will be, and it's not just in the neurosciences, it's in, it's in everything. And the more people will be on the, on these tracks, there will be too many, you know, to all be burnt at the stake. Mm -hmm. So we won't go back into, into that kind of inquisition. As long as the techno mind does not um, sort of come before and mess everything up with, with everything digital and turning our real reality into a new real reality, according, you know, to their, to their doctrines. Um, yeah, the whole business of neurosciences. The sciences need to become mystical again. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the ancient seers of India, and I think all true insights that then give rise to a major discovery in science, they come, they come from the field where these insights are held. And when a person is ready for it, this insight is going to come in. And because it is mysterious, while at the same time being absolutely obvious mm. when it comes in from out there, but it's pre-verbal. In its pre-verbal status, it is crystal clear and completely opaque in terms of how it is going to be brought into this world, into this language that operates in this material world, incarnate world. Mm -hmm. But the ancient seers, you know, they developed the mathematics of the zero from having an insight from the infinite. Um, you know, the different things, the whole, the Ayurvedic system, where you've, you've got some of these pictures where you've got this sort of human shape with all sorts of little sort of threads, mm -hmm. um, you know, making a web in every direction. Not every seer is going to see the same web. Mm -hmm. For sure. Which is what science would like to be able to see. Exactly. But they saw the web. They all see a web. Consequently, the reality of the web 
is 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 the core factor, which is not just one thing. It's 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 a it's a concept that is it has all sorts of manifestations, all sorts of dimensions. You've got the cobweb, you've got the necklace of Indra, mm -hmm. you've got the web of the electric universe, you've got the web of okay, the nervous system. You've got the web of what is actually the thing we call DNA, mm -hmm. which is, in my, oops, I've disappeared. In my contemplative practice, it is, it can't possibly be just an acid, as in uh, deoxy, deoxy, ribose nucleic acid mm -hmm. if that's a word <laughs> um, it's how can the translation of my soul being into an incarnational being be conveyed only through an acid with all my subtle, spiritual, energetic, cognitional, all the different dimensions. How is it possible for that to be conveyed just through a thing that we call an acid? There's way more than that. And actually, there's, there was a great scientist in, in, in Russia called Garyayev. You may have heard of him. And, and he was interested in the junk DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The largest part of the DNA that, okay, they no longer officially call junk, but that, that, that sort of nickname has stuck. And the thing is, so much of it is in the immaterial. That's a web. So taking back, you know, I'm going back to the web image, the web concept that can be so multivalent, multidimensional, multi-meaning. Um, so what is this thing that we reductively called DNA? I can't say that I know, but I know for sure that it's much more than an acid. Mm -hmm. And it's, of course, much more than the 4% of our thing that they call DNA, mm -hmm. which is actually the DNA that they can study and that they can model and that they can mess around with on their computers. There's all the rest of it. There's the fact that, you know, matter, matter is only four or five percent of the actual thing mm -hmm. that we call matter, including ourselves. All the rest of it is whatever it is, etheric. Um, you know, we don't know the words for this, mm -hmm. but if we have a sense like the ancient seers for the immaterial, if we have that kind of sensitivity including within our five senses. Our five senses have been, have been, have been um, blunted. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, the five senses of the hunter-gatherer and of the mystic, you know, they see, hear, smell stuff that is not there physically you know, to the person sitting next to them, but it's there. So you know, science needs to recover that the curiosity of the mystic. 
Mm. Exactly. I mean, the mystic basically is a curious person, <clears throat> is a very curious person, is an explorer. It's not just that, ah, God happened to me. No, <laughs> it's... The mystic is a traveler, a voyager, a journeyer, you know. And so if science, science really needs to recover that dimension because it is, it is in the subtle realms that we can find the answers. And they're never direct answers. They're never linear answers. Mm -hmm. But snippets of insights come to us and all of a sudden, you know, there's something, I feel something big has happened to me and I can't make sense of it with my present um, wherewithal. Which means I'm going to have to chew on that thing that came to me from out there. I have to chew on it. Mm -hmm. And I, but I can't chew on it only up here. There's the whole of the knowing me, which is also my physicality. It is my gut. It is my heart. Mm -hmm. And it is this field of me. All of that is going to have to chew on this thing. And then that's my hero's journey. You know, since that's another one of the cliches we like to use, where I can bring back from that chewing and from the monsters I'm going to encounter in that chewing, you know, that digestion of all sorts of stuff, I'm going to be able to produce, you know, a distilled essential oil of, 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 of knowing something, of information or whatever, um, that I can bring back to my, to my, to my peers. There, I mean, we're going... I'm sorry, I think I'm ranting. Um, perhaps not because we want to, but just because we're experiencing so many interruptions. And uh, yes, we, maybe we can just draw it to a close uh, and call it the first of many conversations. Um, and I would like to thank you so very much for taking the time to sit down and wake up while conversing to us it's very much appreciated <laughs> <laughs> it was great to meet you and your book so far is absolutely incredible um where may people find you and your work uh i have um a substack page enna.substack.com mm -hmm. um and other than that you know i exist with podcasts like this, it's the only way I can be be true to myself. You know, I don't do any kind of social media or things like that. So uh, it's you know my books and and conversations like this. You know, for which I'm I'm very grateful because the other part, you know, the other aspect is that I, I live out in the middle of nowhere, and um, having conversations like this is nourishing for me too. Mm. Um, so I'm. I'm grateful, happy to have met you today, both of you. And um, yeah, looking forward to go you know, deeper. Uh, and I, you know, I'm sorry if I, I do get the feeling now sort of retrospectively that, you know, you say something and then I pick up that thread and they, I go into a different rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but um, well, that's, that's just the way it is. No, no. It's, that's... The, nature, it's the nature of... It's the nature of the subtle world, you know, that we need to, we really need to re-inhabit. Absolutely. And I, I, I have to hammer this away. It's, it's difficult for many Western people to understand this. Um, 
because it's up here in the head, whereas the reality of us is is so in so many dimensions, you know. So uh, we got so close. Yeah, I see. I see conversations like making soup with someone, especially if you've never met them before, and they bring their apron full of ingredients and you have yours and you've never tried those ingredients together before. So it's like alchemy. You put them together and something completely different comes out. So go on tangents. Tangents are encouraged. Uh, that is you adding your ingredients that we would never know to ask for uh, into the, the metaphorical soup or stew. So thank you so much for all of your fantastic ingredients. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. And what you, I mean, what you say is it's basically the foundation of the old spiritual debates that people used to have, mm -hmm. as far as I know, across Asia, where you would have two holders of two different traditions who would, you know, be on the stage or in the middle of a clearing, and everybody would congregate, and these things would last through the night, mm. through the night, and people would follow these debates. Can you imagine what it used to be? Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't this. Every three words now. <laughs> it was. Yes, those must have been sights to behold, for sure. <laughs> okay. Should we say goodbye before we add another postscript? Yes. yes. Exactly. <laughs> goodbye, Anna. Fantastic meeting you. Yes. Take care. Thank you very much. Very glad to know you. Very glad to meet you. Yes. And um, it was an honor, well, honor, and a pleasure. Yes. And uh, have a good forthcoming day. And I'll let you know when this comes out. Right. All right. Take care. All right. Many blessings. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, my dear. Hello. What did you think of Anna? I enjoyed her. I wish that we would have used Zoom so that we would have had a consistent conversation. Yeah. It was very fascinating, and there were lots of different avenues that, that we could have traveled. For sure. Um, she did mention early in our correspondence that she usually uses Zoom without problem. Did you just yawn over there off the side of the mic? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did. I should have take, taken heed. I didn't think that, it, I mean, obviously we've never had uh, this sort of a problem before, but it did sort of interrupt the flow of the conversation um but it was still a, a very incredible conversation and barely got to any of my um my uh list of questions but it's one of those conversations where it just meanders into alcoves that you could never predict anyway i mean that's kind of the way that the book is the book is so thick and dense um i was kind of struggling in the first few pages, first few pages, first couple of chapters going like, how are we going to even 
converse about this. Like there's so much going on here. Like how do you choose which direction to go? But I, I just picked a few questions and assumed that organically it would uh, go in the direction that it was supposed to. And that's what happened with tons of interruptions. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. Okay. She was great. I, I really enjoyed her and uh, her environment. I really enjoyed the the rooster and the chickens, hearing the chickens in the background and seeing her kitty cats and it sounded like someone was shuffling around the kitchen awake or waking and I just, I enjoyed that. The organic nature of her environment was nice. Indeed. I think... What happens when we get into these dialogues is that I think, my gosh, I wish these were face-to-face conversations and how I see uh, the podcast developing is actually traveling to meet people and traveling to have conversations because I think that will add a richness and a depth to uh, what we're doing because of the energy exchanges that happen when you're in the same room with someone. And I would love to go back to Thailand and I would love to go to an area where we could speak without the, the use of this type of technology. I agree. Uh, eventually Perhaps we will get to that point. Um, I would like to, I've stated that I would like to make sort of more of a documentary format uh, for these things. But I thought of those when I was saying that as separate entities, sort of about the subjects that we talk about. But it would be cool to um, sort of not only do that, but include the interviews with uh, the people that we talk with in their context, in their environment, totally, uh, and all of the things surrounding that. Because as you get it now, they're they're sort of disembodied to a certain degree, not completely without a body or a context, but disembodied conversations that kind of sort of come out of the ether and then go back. Um, but to have. Uh, have it so that um, you could sort of lead up to it and then sort of walk away from it gracefully uh, with a lot of other stuff sprinkled throughout, I think would be really delightful. Well, I think the thing that I, I consider is that in these discussions, there's two different realities happening. There's the reality that we are in, in this room together and then there's the reality that the guest is in in the room that they are in and what I would love is actually to merge these realities where we are inhabiting the same space because I think there's a a different level of energy that would happen and a different type of a conversation that would happen because we wouldn't have these technical issues and we could really perceive that person's energy and they could perceive our energy. And I just think it would be a richer uh, forum uh, in order to have these types of dialogues. So that's an exciting thing to 
um, present and to think about in the future. Because I, I have been watching, I actually listen to podcasts from, you know, different people and they do the, these uh, conversations in different ways. And one person in particular, he goes, he travels to different parts of the world and he interviews people and most of the times they're in some form of a studio, but it is like a face-to-face conversation. And I think that there is definitely something to be said about doing that. And this is definitely the type of person that I would feel like we would have a deeper uh, conversation if she uh, was in the room with us. I would, I see it more like being field, field recordings. Like I can't imagine taking Anna into a sterile, overly quiet studio and having a conversation with her. Technically it might sound fantastic, but to get the background noises of her reality and what's going on, I think that's, that's half of it right there. Yeah. Well, some of these studios, one of the, the people that I'm thinking of in particular, the studio set up they like they basically set up in different environments so he has his own equipment and then he brings it into a environment and the environment was a wood shop cool. so in the background there were saws going and chainsaws and and so it brought a different um level or layer into the conversation because you had these ambient noises happening in the background uh but absolutely, if in her environment, it would be fantastic to have cats jumping on us and sharing purring a pot of tea and, and sharing a pot of tea and hearing the rooster. And I heard more than one rooster myself. It <laughs> sounded like wrong. a very vocal rooster. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what roosters are pretty much vocal, which is why they're not. Um, kittens welcome at, <laughs> uh, in highly densely densely populated areas like we are living in or a, a neighborhood for that matter it doesn't have to be highly populated or densely populated yeah i kept thinking of joseph campbell like uh, the way especially reading her book uh the uh, probably through the first third of it Um, The way that she draws from so much, such a wide breadth of subject matter and, but at the same time, it's not, it's nowhere near, it's not dry at all. It's very moist uh, and dense. Like I just think of like a handful of wet earth and moss um, that, and there's so much going on. There's like an ecosystem in every handful um, there's so much going on there that it it kind of like Joseph Campbell in a way he can sort of set your mind uh, reeling into a place maybe that you were nowhere near when you first started watching this talk say with Bill Moyer and then you're all of a sudden you're taken into this world where you're just thinking about this, these pictures that he's planting in your mind with all of these things that he's telling you about myths and legends and her her writing has the same effect and the way i mean i've done a lot of listening to conversations with her throughout the last week or two and she wields language in the in the here and now like she does on pen and paper it's not it's like something that she premeditates and doesn't speak like that but she delivers 
uh, her her words in the here and now exactly like that too. Very dense, very powerful, and carrying a whole lot of weight to them. To great effect, I think. I like it. I had uh, lots of questions that I wanted to ask her about, you know, the history of women and... Um, I think part of it is because of the class that I'm taking right now that really has influenced my perspectives on women in in pre-modern Europe and how uh, education was handled for women and the role that women had uh, in the home and kind of the foundation that women were afforded of kind of running a house and how there is now this shift and this pivot for women to really, and a discouragement of women being in the home and running the home and kind of forcing women into the workforce and what the rationale behind that is from a esoteric standpoint and I do think that all of that has been by design. Uh, Not to say that I don't think women should be educated or that women should have sovereignty over their um, lives and how they live their lives, but I think that there is a a definite shift and a move to um, kind of force women outside of this natural relationship that they have with the home and the land and kind of a disconnection from that. And it's interesting to be reading about when these periods happened and how women responded to them and the role of religion and all of that. And so I would have loved to drill into that with her because I'm sure she has some interesting perspectives. Indeed. Well, next time. Yes, we absolutely need to have uh, Anna back on, and I really enjoyed her her thoughts and her perspectives, and I I find her a fascinating character. That being said, um, I don't know why I said that being said, because what I'm going to say now doesn't really have anything to do with what was being said, but... Um, thank you all so very, very much. I mean, are you, did you express what you needed to express? Okay. Thank you all so yes. very much for listening. Um, and hopefully you were able to glean something positive or new or a different slant on things maybe that you hadn't considered before or had, but not in the context that Anna brought it forth. Um, If you have any suggestions for guests or praise or blame or casserole recipes, nobody ever sends casserole recipes. Uh, You can send them to the melt podcast at protonmail.com or you can reach out to me at hunter hyphen muse at protonmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all on locals and Patreon for supporting us. Helps to keep these things going, helps to make a little bit more room so I can spend the time that I would love to spend uh, 
putting energy and love into this um, labor of love. So thank you. Uh, you help afford me a little freedom to do that. Until next time, we love you. Ta-ta. Thanks so much for making it this far. If you've liked what you've heard and are thus inspired to contribute to the well-being of the melt, there are a few easy ways to do that. The most tangible being financially, which can be achieved by clicking the Locals or Patreon link in the episode notes, and then you will be led through the process of starting your monthly subscription for a mere $5 a month. This will give you access to exclusive episodes, full-length episodes, and you can participate in our monthly Melt Meetups, where we can congregate together as a community and often get a chance to chat with some of our guests more intimately. Another way to help out would be to go to wherever it is that you listen to the Melt and leave a favorable review or rating. You can also spread the word via sharing or recommendation to friends and family, either in person or virtually. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.